Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our second series, The Unknown Path, I'm meeting six different authors, actors and naturalists to discuss the various and often unexpected routes their lives have taken. Not far from a hill farm on the Black Mountains, the days are drawing into spring. A sweetness to the air and a softness to the ground. It's terrain that has become a part of the writer Horatio Clare. It made the backdrop for his first book, The Memoir Running for the Hills, and has been sewn through much of his work ever since, whether that has been about the migratory path of the swallow or the allure of seafaring life. He is a regular contributor to both Radio 4 and Radio 3, where he won much acclaim for his slow radio sound walks. Horatio is going to take us to the top of his favourite Welsh hill to admire the land before us and the skylarks above. On the way, I want to hear about the curious route of the travel writer, the pull between restlessness and rootedness, and how his path was forged by his rural upbringing. So there's the Brecon Beacons, and that's the most famous profile of them, is Benavan, and then that one, the volcano one, is Tarvo, and those long ridges between them. You can't see just over this first ridge is Langors Lake, and below us is the Cumdi Valley. Um, that's where, that's the Gare, where the pink farmhouse is in the middle distance, which was a major Roman fort controlling where three valleys met and meet. Um, this is where I grew up. This is our furthest field and the house is that way towards the sun under the mountain. So it keeps the sun very late up here, but it comes late as it rises over the hill. And the shadows are a hundred yards long, look at that, and the trees over there. Absolutely perfect day. It's February now, Horatio, but normally what would it be like in, and it's a beautiful day, normally what would it be like in winter here? Uh, this is a bad field for winter because the east wind is very hard here, it comes straight across from there. It's a field worth keeping and it comes with hill rides, um, but we've only ever used it as, as a high pasture really, and hanging onto it means that we can still put sheep out onto the hill, which is here. And here's a hill gate, and that's the Sorgum Valley, and there's a record of the Hindenburg flying down there. It's on its way back from New York, and uh, they had, there was discussion about whether or not they should shoot it, which would have changed history. Um, it's opposite, really, because we bought an air gun. It's what my brother and I love to do if we're free, and not farming or banging in ratchet posts. Is pot tin cans with air rifles, because we're a bit deprived of entertainment around here, you know. So we come up here and we have the Kundi shooting challenge, which I'm going to challenge you to, Laura, and uh, we'll just pop away at this tin can I bought. And the winner gets tangerine. I mean, the odds listener of me winning this challenge, uh, very slim. And so you want to put your cheek here? Oh dear, this is terrifying. Um, Whoa. Good shot. <laughs> See? She's done it. <laughs> So how often would you and your brother be doing this? Really? Well, I mean, we, we're only probably both back five or six times a year. And we always talk about it, and mostly we do it. Miss. Isn't it fun? So, uh, Claire, I guess feel? you're a little bit rusty, right? I'm very rusty, Laura. <laughs> that was extremely uh, delightful, though. Yes. Don't you think? Thank you very much. Good easy way of passing the morning. Not at all. Uh, Horatio's just clambered over a dry stone wall like a sort of goat. <laughs> so this is part of the Beacons Way, which is a long distance footpath. 
goes through Cacao, goes over this um, pretty well from England all the way into the middle of Wales. Absolutely wonderful long distance walk, which I haven't done. I've done lots of sections of it. In fact, last time I did it um, in the winter, the proper winter, I found a goshawk, which is my, one of my favourite um, birds in the whole world. And now I know where he lives. He lives over there in a big pine wood. There's, um, as we came up, we saw great tits and blue tits and chaffinches. And then this realm up here belongs to the ravens and the buzzards. And you get green woodpeckers here. And then skylarks. And they're the, the great poet's bird because they tower up to the point where you can't see them. And they sort of sing themselves aloft and then they come down. Hail to thee, blithe spirit. I think it's Shelley. I once did a search for how many individual poems recognised skylarks or used them or referred to them in the, I think it was the Chicago Poetry Archive. There's about 9,000. So, <laughs> you know, without skylarks, you, you lose a lot of literature. So where I grew up, it was a very different landscape. It's very it's beautiful and it's countryside, but it's quite flat. Right. What do you think living among mountains has done for you and for your mind and the way that you write even? I think you get a natural ecstasy from a day like this and from height um, because it gives you that feeling, not of control, but of distance above something. And so I guess a degree of perspective and that you're always very small but also we always felt a bit special because what we lost in not being with our school friends we gained in this incredible journey back up the mountain and the feeling of I suppose occupying the heights has always given I guess a sense of self-possession I think and independence and it means freedom to all of us and you feel yourself expand you know your vision fills the view. Um, I mean, you were going to gigs and to music and to wonderful live and real things. And what we had was this. So there our music is geological, it's weather, it's very local history. And being part of a near eternal story, and this is old Devonian sandstone, so it's extremely old. You can see the marks in the landscape where previous farmers and generations have lived and built and there's an eternity in it. So it feels like being part of that. And you said that it, this was your music. Is sound very different here? Yes, it is. I'm generally, we're both quite quiet people. Um, but I, I really don't like loud music. I don't really like crowds. I found urban living really hard because of the underlying grating roar of somewhere like London. Whereas here, you can hear the aeroplane very high overhead. But apart from that and the occasional RAF jet, it's all wind, silence, animals, birds. Can you describe the smell for us? Yes, so uh, in this season, it's always the same. It's that quite hard bitten smell of the end of winter. You can get the sweetness of the first of the new grass. There's the dead bracken in it. And you can almost smell the coldness of the upper air. And there's a sweetness, isn't it, too? A kind of warmth. And it's um, when you get, I think it's to do with moisture uh, and earth. There's a smell of a thing called petrichor, which you smell after rain falls. 
and there's some equivalent going on here as um, you know the bulbs are literally cracking open at the moment. So when you first left this mountain to move away, Horatio, where did you go first? Where um, have you been yeah. in the time since? Um, so I went to school first in the village and then in Tlangatuk, which is a few miles away. And then um, I was one of Thatcher's children. I got an assisted place uh, to a public school, which began with a prep school in Hillstone in Malvern. And one of the reasons Mum chose it was because it had hills. And from the top of here on a really good day, you can see them. Uh, so I felt it wasn't that far away. So that was at 11. And then this place became even more precious, really. And it felt like... In times of trouble, there was like this one thing that was known to me. And if you look down, you can see the roofs of our house, which used to be our house, down there. So my window looked out at that skyline. And so that skyline and then that incredible view, what I had engraved onto my mind's eye, really. And that's kind of been the glasses I've always worn, which is an immense privilege. And it was hard fought. I mean, it was not easy being subsistence sheep farmers up this hill. But my God, it was an adventure. It was the subject for your first book wasn't it? Yeah, easiest thing I ever wrote, running for the hills. It wrote itself. It was the story of mum and dad coming here, and mum staying and then raising us. And I used some of her diaries, which is the best writing in it, really, because she's a natural. And these tumps, so we call this one Albert's Tump, after the farmer who used to farm down there. And then that's the first big tump. And I thought we could walk along that contour, because it's really lovely, across the top of the valley. You were talking to your mum earlier and she was saying we were about a month away from lambing, is that right? That's right, yeah. Can you tell us what it was like when lambing season started when you were living here? It was a huge deal. Mum would start getting up really early in the morning before the crow and they, they're the first things to wake up in the countryside and that, ah, is that their kind of way of waking all the others up and it was basically a 24-hour battle and when I was big enough I, was, I would go out at night with a lambing torch and look for anything lying down or in trouble and if anything was I would either try and help or get mum to come and do it and it was a good time too because she used to get lammers who were veterinary students who'd come from places like Durham she trusted in like northerners and they'd come and find themselves up a hill with us um, and how many sheep did you have at that point? she was lambing 300 um, which is a serious undertaking it means it just does not stop and you would wake up in the night and there'd be a lamb in your room, in a box, in a towel. You got really used to the blood and guts of it. I remember at the age of about 10 having to hold the severed neck of a lamb. And I remember thinking this was pretty basic. It's very good for perspective. It takes away all fear of death. Dying is the bad thing. Death is fine. Um, and most farmers are phlegmatic and funny. And actually, they love their lives, a lot of them. Because um, who wouldn't really on a day like this? Just can't miss. Your mother and father came here and they were writers in London. Yeah. They were outsiders and you were all outsiders. Yeah. Is that something you've kept a hold of your whole life? Definitely, yeah. I had the wrong accent, ridiculous name, bowl haircut done by mum, and was never part one of the. I mean, they were lovely kids and they were always included as friends. But we were always freaks. <laughs> and that's a feeling I've um, grown to cherish, actually. It doesn't bother me at all to be the odd one out. Um, maybe it's narcissism, but it's also quite character building. But you now often make radio programmes and write books and articles about 
walking along single paths, don't you? Or single routes. Yeah, well, the great one is the Swallow Road. And that started for me just there, um, by the rooftops, just over the ridge. It was a day like this, and they'd come. And I must have been seven or eight. And Mum absolutely loved them. And she said, don't look, they're back from Africa. And they were these beautiful, silky birds. And in my childhood, we, we, this landscape was so rich in bird life that you'd see them up close without binoculars all the time. And then uh, at the end of summer, an autumn came and they went. She said, oh, they've gone back to Africa. I remember thinking then, that just seemed extraordinary. So when I was about 30, I was kind of sick of myself. I was fed up with being a young writer in London. And I wanted uh, complete change. And flew to Cape Town and followed them all the way back here. And uh, the swallows really did affect a complete revolution in my life and ways of thinking and it just destroyed I think the path paths and roads are, are so mighty and boundaries and borders are so feeble and paths and roads are real things and boundaries are apart from natural boundaries are, are nonsense and we and animals and language and culture we flow across those things and it's not it's not not a journey it is an effort but that's part of the narrative of human and natural life, I think, is the journey along the path out and then perhaps the journey back. And my political life, which is more or less subsumed in my writing, is all about what binds us and about the destruction of boundaries and the privileging of paths and bridges and all those um, wonderful clichés, but about the road, really. So then I went to sea with sailors on container ships and I found dozens of nationalities who all felt and worked and thought and worried and laughed in similar ways across all boundaries and the sea is covered in invisible maps of memory and trade and their frontiers don't exist there and the same for the sky so that's what I'm about really I'm about the championing of the road uh, even if it's hard difficult dangerous taboo I just will go I like nothing more than a frontier post where you haven't got the right visa or you've lied on your form and you get through and in Africa, that journey taught me that we travel in bands um, like, and you look after each other. It was like being pilgrims. I think there's a deep, I think pilgrimage is one of our deep inherited sort of structural grammar of the way we, that we think and feel. I think we're about a journey towards a thing and whether that thing is, you know, the house and children and the happiness of your family or that thing is uh, a oneness with God or a professional achievement um, or death, I think that we are all pilgrims on an eternal path and in a morning like this it's the cathedral of heaven really you mentioned the sea and i know the sea is a big thing for you but you grew up among mountains um how are you different when you're at sea i feel like this because a ship gives you a, a height above the sea so i like being on a bridge ideally with the whole thing um, out before you uh, the sea gives you a deep calm and perspective. It really is the healer. And the sea also is mighty and exhilarating. And on a day like this, the register of feeling is quite high in the chest. It's one of those exalting days. But on, if you want really ferocious weather, that's when you want to be at sea, of course, because it, that's uplifting in a completely different way. And you're down somewhere in your gut. Um, and it's so vast. I mean, we crossed the Pacific for two weeks and we didn't see another ship. And Joseph Conrad said, you know, the peace of God begins a thousand miles from the nearest land. Uh, I would argue that you can get it up here today, of course, but then this is one of the oldest parts of my life. It's where it began, really. It's the, it's the headwater of my thing. And so when I talk about the swallows, I always say 
there is a road and it begins outside the venue and it goes all the way to Cape Town and everybody along it is your friend because that's what I found. live among now are in the north. How different is that? It's a much darker landscape I think. Yeah, well they're proper rainmakers those hills. Um, they're very very beautiful and very wild and the noises like Brown Wardle um, and uh, Blackstone Edge and Rulimore Road and Syke. I love the language of it. When I first got there it reminded me of this kind of like the dull flat heaviness of kind of pewter and broadswords whereas this is a very different landscape for me I much prefer this I really miss it um, but I you can certainly love them the moors and they've got things like short-eared owls on them and awesome creatures and there's a proper microclimate <laughs> so when you get to a certain height basically anything can happen and you kind of half expect saber-toothed tigers and I do love that side of it your most recent book, at least I think it's your most recent book, is um, about walking through Germany in the footsteps of Bach. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, at 20, Bach walked 270 miles across Germany from Arnstadt to Lübeck to see a Buxtehude who was a great um, composer and musician. And it was clearly a transformative experience for that young man. The road is a formative place, uh, always. Do you Go think on. the road is a very masculine place still? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I think it's because of habit and duty and what we would now call oppression. I think it um, began as a particularly masculine environment. But when you meet women who know it, they are often the most happy, the most balanced, the most wide-ranging. They've tested themselves in, in, in fear, which the road will do to anyone, but it's particularly poignant for a woman. So I think it has been conceived that way. And I think ridding the world of that idea that... Um, kind of fortresses and fences are to keep your women behind and that roads are for men to range. If we can get rid of that, we'll have done the planet a real favour. So you said about the idea of pilgrimage and always moving towards something, and you've spoken rapturously about this land and where we're sitting and what that means to you and it's your anchor. Does that mean that when you're away, you are almost placing yourself in a state of exile? Yes. Definitely, and I, I think for all of us, uh, in some ways, exile is the condition of modern life. But when your home is such a specific place and uh, so magnetic, that without question, uh, yes, that's absolutely right. And I think I will remain so until the day I move back here and inform, you know, the post office and the bank uh, and all my friends that this is my address. Um, and it won't be for a long time, I fear. But. Um, what happens is that, you know, I have a family in the north, so whenever I'm away, I'm also away from them. So when I'm here, I'm away from them, and they're wondering when I'll be back. And when I'm there, I'm away from this. Um, so yes, I think that's possibly why a feeling of perpetual motion. And when you write, I feel like I'm in motion. That motion is, is in some way a salve to exile, um, because it's like the seafarers, you know, they another night, another day, another week, another month, until you're off, until you're home and the constant forward motion of the ship. They always love a landfall, but then as soon as they've made landfall, they want to get out again because they want to take another port off. And I've lived like that for years. And at some point, I mean, I'm 45, you learn that your, your exile, your home, and your motion are all within yourself. And I'm getting better, um, not exactly at being in the moment, but in seeing that the moment extends forward and back. And do you genuinely think you could stop in one place? 
you don't think you would move back here and then want to be back at sea effectively I don't think I'll ever stop but I would love I'd love to come and go from here or somewhere like this this I mean this would be ideal of course well, it's Odysseus isn't it that's the kind of template of uh, uh, 20th century human in Western Europe and so we voyage out we voyage back but they say that when he got home uh, somebody had he had an oar and there was somebody said to him you have to go I think it was one of the gods or the goddess probably Athene and she says you've got to take this oar until nobody knows what it is in other words to come home is not enough you've got to go further inland away from the sea you've got to find a place where the sea is unknown and then your journeys are done you've been listening to the toast podcast with me laura barton the producer is jeff bird and the series was conceived by emily mears you can subscribe to the toast podcast via your usual podcast provider or listen on toast magazine which can be found via the toast website www.toa.st. Our third series will be launching in autumn.